Hey, Monday through Friday here on WBT, and if you're listening to the podcast, this is a terrestrial radio show that is a podcast as well. But uh, News Talk is the radio station, and uh, oftentimes you hear about politics. And uh, in politics, uh, President Donald Trump uh, claimed that he was going to be arrested uh, upcoming uh, because of an investigation that was going on. And we looked it up, and then uh, Mike Rosenwald with the Washington Post helped us out a little bit. A president has never been indicted, but one was arrested. Welcome, everyone, to the Carolina Outdoors. Bill Barty on this side, Christopher Lawing on that side. Christopher, your job is to say, what president? Who was the president, Bill? Well, let me tell you what. This happened in 1872, and you can look that up on Google who the president was, but we had a president that liked fast horses. And, in fact, in his horse-drawn carriage, he liked to get going fast. So in 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant was arrested at the corner of 13th and M Streets, northwest in Washington, D.C. So... It wasn't a high crime. It was just a misdemeanor. But let me tell you how this went down. And this was confirmed in, a, in 2012 by Kathy Lanier, who is D.C.'s police chief, was told uh, way back in the turn of the century about this. Uh, Grant's love of fast horses. He was an ardent admirer of a good horse and loved nothing better than sit behind a pair of spirited animals. This was in the Washington Star reported. Um, he was a good driver and sometimes let him out to try their metal. And that's where he got in trouble. So he had a need for speed, in other words. Yes, he did. Go a little top gun right there. The police had been receiving complaints of speeding carriages, and a mother and child in Washington, D.C. were run over and badly injured. By others, not by, by Grant. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, Police officer there, um, Officer West, was dispatched to investigate, and as he spoke to witnesses, another group of speeding carriages headed toward him, including one driven by the President of the United States. West held up his hand for them to stop. Grant was driving a pair of fast steppers, and he had some difficulty in halting them, but he managed to do it. The President, President Grant, was a bit testy. Well, officer, he said, and these are in quotes, what do you want to do with me? West replied, I want to inform you, Mr. President, that you are violating the law of speeding along this street. Your fast driving, sir, has set the example for a lot of other gentlemen, unquote. The president apologized, promised it wouldn't happen again, and galloped away. But Grant could not curb in your words, his need for speed. So the next evening, West was patrolling again at the corner of 13th and M Streets when the president came barreling through again, this time speeding so fast that it took him an entire block of Washington, D.C. to stop. Now, Grant was cocky, and he had a smile on his face. The Star reported back in 1908 or whenever it was, uh, he looked like a schoolboy who had been caught in a guilty act by a teacher. Grant said, do you think, officer, that I was violating the speed laws? I do, Mr. President, West said. Grant had an excuse for his speeding. He had no idea he had been going that fast. 
That sounds like a familiar excuse <laughs> for uh, me and the South Carolina Highway Patrol. Uh, West was sympathetic but firm. He said, I am very sorry, Mr. President, to have to do it, but you are the, for you are the chief of the nation, and I am nothing but a policeman. But duty is duty, sir, and I will have to place you under arrest. Lanier, the historian, confirmed the arrest, and there are other historical references to it. Grant and several of his speeding buddies, who were also arrested, went, to West, went with West to the police station. The president was ordered to put up 20 bucks as collateral. A trial was held the next day. Thirty-two ladies of the most refined character and surroundings voluntarily came into the court and testified against the drivers, the Star Story said. The cases were contested bitterly. The judge imposed heavy fines and a scathing rebuke to the speeding drivers who did not include the president. He didn't show up for court. And we don't know those circumstances. Maybe somebody had been paid off, or maybe they said, Mr. President, we'll let this slide, but uh, we don't know those circumstances. What a story there on the Carolina outdoors. But, Bill, let's step Let's take a step back. Let's think about this. So let's let's get some context here. Okay, Grant, a sitting president, just pieced the nation back together, head of, you know, the Northern Army's presidential representation, um, countries getting back together, and we have an officer who in his words said, I am nothing but an officer and you are the chief of our nation. That's impressive. He was um, doing his duty, and truly was, and no individual of fame or riches or whatever would uh, prevent him from doing that. That must have taken some guts to call him on that. Yeah, well, that's true. And if you're just joining us, we're talking about a president that was arrested, Ulysses S. Grant, way back in 1872, I think was the year. With Christopher Lawing and Bill Barty from Jesse Browns Outdoors, jessebrowns.com. And that remind me, of course, we talk a lot about fishing. And in the upcoming segment, we're going to have Jake Rash from the North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission join us to talk a little bit more about fish. But uh, this also popped up, and uh, Ben Brash wrote about it in the Washington Post. It's about a whale that sank a boat. Now, this just happened, one in March 13th. Uh, a boat sank. Of course, they had technology. They had uh, um, locating devices, GPSs, communication. But it made a reminder to Brash that a whale sank a boat 200 years ago as well. And what followed included one of America's greatest uh, pieces of literature, Moby Dick. And that was when an enraged whale had wrecked their ship, setting the uh, the crew adrift in the Pacific Ocean. Two torturous months at sea later, the sailors uh, who had to go to cannibalism to survive, Christopher, came about the book Moby Dick. Now, you have insight into this book in the historical record of these whale hunters and the need for, I guess they were after the uh, oils 
that were in the wells, and it was for street lamps. It was for um, your lamps at home back in the 1820s. Now, I wasn't there, Bill. You told me you were. I, I wasn't there. But there's a book that we can read that'll tell us about <laughs> oh, it. And that's what it is. <laughs> and that book is a beautiful read. It's by Nathaniel Philbrick, titled In the Heart of the Sea. The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex. And this is a story that probably, um, as, as we think and previous generations have thought about the severity of the tragedy of the Titanic. This was their Titanic before the Titanic. This was a tragedy of a great whaling ship out of Nantucket, Massachusetts. That uh, The Essex. The Essex, yeah, that was what it was called. And it was based out of Nantucket. That was a huge whaling center. A whale uh, did a number on that boat, and it sank. And, um, you know, these guys were sailors and shipmen who were out there to harvest the oil from these whales, as Bill, you mentioned, were to power the street lights and lamps, and uh, quite a quite a tragedy. Well, the way the Essex ended up, the final crew consisted of twenty sailors. It included the captain's first cousin, Owen Coffin. The captain had promised the teen's mother he'd take care of her boy. Their mission was to fill the ship with whale blubber, an essential resource in the era of oil lamps. But this enraged whale struck the vessel. This is November of 1820. They were 1,300 miles from land. All 20 survived, but they were left listless, and three jury-rigged boats was written in the Pacific. Uh, The mistake they made was they didn't sail downwind to the closest island. That would have taken them 20 to 30 days to reach. Uh, they continued uh, kind of maintaining their food as, as long as they could on these makeshift boats. They put sails up, but that just made it harder in many circumstances. When the food went out, they became weak, and as sailors died, I know this is unpleasant, they began cannibalism. Uh, and then, after that, they began drawing straws. So in February of 1820, after 89 days at sea, the three remaining sailors um, went to a to an island, essentially, um, and it was a saga. And from this true story saga came Herman Melville's Moby Dick. It made ripples in the news of that era. That was quite a quite a time. Well, and I must say, when Moby the Dick, I found this out just researching about the wreck of the Essex. Uh, This saga went on um, until 1823, while in the remote northwestern Hawaiian islands, a storm struck and sank uh, the two brothers, which Captain Pollard was the captain of. He survived that one as well, returned to Nantucket, and became the town's night watchman. Uh, And then he began sharing the story of the Essex while he was a night watchman. Um, Melville, a 21-year-old Melville, started his whaling career that included a brief stint deserted on a Pacific island, um, and then his literary hit, formerly titled Moby Dick, or also known as The Whale, it flopped when it was published in 1851. It sold 2,915 copies at about $1.50 apiece. 
um, netting about 500 bucks for Melville. I guess after his royalties and fees were taken out and everything. Well, when he died in 1891, according to the museum, it wasn't about four decades later when Random House's 1930 printing developed it into a seminal piece of American literature that it remains nearly a century later. This is all in the Washington Post. Christopher, we parked this thing up because it's leading into another fish story, opening day of trout season in North Carolina that we're going to talk about in the next segment. Much smaller fish, but still a whale of a good time. And a whale of a story. And speaking of story, we have it on the docket for April 27th. We know it's a ways out there, but please save the date. It's a Thursday night. Come hear your neighbor's adventure. We have three new stories to go up onto the storyteller stage at Jesse Brown's, starting us off Roman Phillips' Beyond Eagle, followed by Helen Hosley's Wearing the Neat Hat, and finally Russ Van Buren's going to tell the story Rise from Collapse, all at Jesse Brown's start time, 6 o'clock. We'll be out of there by 8 p.m. You are all invited He's Christopher Lawing. I'm Bill Barty. You're listening to the Carolina Outdoors.